right, so we'll turn the recorder on and then tell that joke. And in fact, uh, some of the best Buddhist jokes are jokes on emptiness. And that it's uh, Sunday afternoon. I'm really glad to see you guys. And and uh, Brandon, thanks for your question about emptiness. But you phrased it in a way as if it were a meditation object. That That's the way that it was described in this video is that there were at least ways of approaching meditation where there could be a focus or some sort of you know intent around emptiness itself right. for the meditation as, as if it's an object so in that regard that's an indication that the people who are talking about emptiness are not empty whatever it is that they're talking about it's something that is there that they're calling emptiness but if it were really empty then there would be nothing there at all. So in a way, you could say by taking all ob possible objects as your object of meditation, then what is left that is not your object of meditation is emptiness or sunyata. Okay. All right. Now, uh, there are several suttas about this. Uh, one of them is number 121 in the Majjhima Nikaya. Uh, and that uh, there's several examples that the Buddha uses. One of the examples is a sala where the Buddha is talking to uh, Ananda about the sala and he takes him into the sala. By the way, the sala, actually a sala is a house or a building or a room that has only a roof and the supports for the roof. It may or may not have a floor. And it and it probably doesn't have walls. But that the supports that hold uh, uh, the roof up can also be made into benches and seats. That in fact, the typical uh, bus stop for the kids in Tainan for the school buses, the typical uh, bus stop is a sala, and it's made in the style of a sala that is traditional in Thailand. So you can actually think of a Western bus stop is also a sala, except that many times they do have a wall on the sala in the West simply so that they can put up ads. But the, but the wall itself is of no value. Yeah. That the real value is the roofing over for rain. Okay, so, mm -hmm. uh, and that this is a traditional eating place for the monks in Thailand, that every Wat will have a sala. It's a really good place to stay, and in fact, because it's open air, it's cool. That's intentional. All right, and so Buddha takes uh, Ananda into the sala at a time when the monks were not there. And he says to Ananda, look, the sala is empty of monks. It is empty of bowls, it is empty of clatter, it is empty of the activities associated with eating. Okay, there's another example. 
And that is the example that in the forest, there is an emptiness of town. There is no town in the forest, except for perhaps in the mind of the one who is in the forest. And then the forest is not empty of a town because the town is there in the mind of the guy who's thinking about it. Or another way of talking about it is, is that then beauty is in the mind of the beholder. They say beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but it's a little deeper than that. It goes all the way from the eye sockets down through the optical nerves and into the mind. And that's where the beauty arises, is inside the mind. But the object itself is empty of beauty. It makes sense. Okay. Well, that's what the Buddha is talking about. We need to start looking at what's not there. Which is exactly what Sherlock Holmes was famous for. That uh, this, the average scene is, is that uh, Sherlock Holmes and, and Dr. Watson walk into the crime scene. And Dr. Watson starts musing about the people who lived there and the kind of lifestyles and all of the kind of stuff that he could see. And there um, Sherlock Holmes is with his mic mag magnifying glass, looking at all the details, looking at the hairs, looking at the way the cigarettes are stubbed into the uh, uh, ashtray and all of that kind of stuff because he's looking for what's missing. Trying to find out what's not there, because what's not there is what the criminal, whoever or whatever it is, did in order to confuse the detectives. And mm -hmm. so that's what Sherlock Holmes is looking for, is what's not there. Okay, how can we begin to use that as a, an opportunity for practicing correctly? Anapanasati is because we also begin to recognize what's not there. An example of what's not there is there are no unwholesome thoughts right there, right now. The mind is free from unwholesome thoughts would be one of the things that we would look at as sunyata. Another one would be that while there are no unwholesome thoughts in the mind, there is also no self or no selfishness. And so we begin to do the investigation, not in the sense of finding emptiness itself, because emptiness itself is not there. But what is there is generally empty of any essence or any meaning. That meaning, like beauty, is in the eye or the mind of the beholder. That we add almost everything to it that we would see as a quality. And so that's what we're actually beginning to understand is, is that the objects of meditation themselves are empty of the things that we would normally think is there. Like that car. It's not really a car without all the pieces of the car being in place, that there's no inherent harness in the car. 
is just a collection of objects, motors, wheels, steering wheels, seats. And if you take that car apart and put it all over the yard so that all you have is car parts, you've got no car. You've got no carness there because part of the carness is the transportation that the car provides. And when the car is all taken apart, when the car is taken apart, there's no car there. And when you start taking what is there for yourself apart, you begin to see that there is no essence of Brandon there. That you're actually empty of Brandon until you think Brandon into existence. And when you do think Brandon into the existence, somehow or another, we get the feeling that Brandon's always been there and always will be. It's almost like going to the closet, opening the closet and seeing a particular shirt. You say, yeah, that shirt's in the closet. Then you go and close the closet, thinking that that shirt's in the closet. Later, you go back and you check and you see, yeah, that shirt's in the closet. But after a while, you go back to the closet and you recognize that that shirt's got rat holes all over it and it's not the shirt that you thought it was. And so that shirt has changed. It was actually empty of the shirtness that we thought was in there and it doesn't exist anymore. Now we've got a rat, rat eaten piece of cloth or a moth eaten piece of cloth that we don't want to wear in public to wear that we like that shirt. So the shirtness was not in that shirt. But it was our liking of it and now our disliking of it is what's really there. The beauty is in the mind of the beholder, not in the article itself. It's empty of beauty. Beauty is optional, added by the beholder. And in that sense, it's also self-generated. Mm-hmm. But when you we make, look at the, you can print print beauty like money. Mm -hmm. Well, that's <laughs> exactly what it. this. That's what business is all about: is printing beauty and selling it for money. Yeah, in this sense, I mean, you know, in your mind, you can you can generate beauty and interpretations of beauty yourself. Then why don't the we objects do that are, instead of going out and buying somebody else's beauty? <laughs> uh, depends who it is. I guess some people do that, but um, you know, I think it's just well, a habit. Say it a doesn't people depend buy. upon the people directly in the sense of this one always does it this way and that one does it always that way. But rather, uh, we could see that sometimes each one of us can see that, and sometimes we can't. Sometimes yeah. we can see the sure. emptiness in all things, and sometimes we can't. That we see meaning where meaning really doesn't exist. We see importance where importance doesn't exist inherently on its own. That importance, like beauty, is always added by the mind of the beholder. Otherwise, oh. importance is empty of importance. The emptiness is not there. Well, I must say, Damarado, uh, I get what you mean, and it seems very important. <laughs> <laughs> Except there, 
there's nothing to it. Yeah. <laughs> and recognizing that there's nothing to it. That's the whole point is, is that almost everything that we ever considered importance didn't have importance built into it. That the importance was always added later. I mean, look how many people think it was so important that this uh, Republican or this Democrat got elected in 2020. But now that we've got the uh, uh, um, this side of the other thing happening, it becomes kind of irrelevant as to that election. And yet it was so important to so many people when it was occurring, but now two years later, people got other things on their mind. Yep. Yeah, so that election wasn't important. Actually, if it were truly important, then it would remain important, but it doesn't. Whatever it was is important for a short time because a lot of people are delusional, and then a lot of people begin to figure out that it was not important, and so it loses its importance. And so we can begin to understand that um, actually the original teaching of the Buddha had to do around the issue that every individual thing is uh, empty of any essence of itself. In other words, there is no dog, dogness in a dog. There is no waterness in water because waterness is just a combination of molecules of hydrogen and oxygen, but they'll break apart and they'll come back together again. One of the things that I find quite remarkable is, is that when it's measured how much water a person drinks and how much urine they put out, we always put out more urine than we drink. Why is that? because we also eat hydrocarbons and then we breathe oxygen and the hydrocarbons break down and the oxygen or excuse me the uh, hydrogen in that um in the carbon hydrocarbons goes into uh water and that the carbon then is combined with carbon dioxide and we breathe that out we actually breathe out the heaviest weightiest part as carbon and we breathe it out because it's um uh, a gas molecule. And so in that regard, water itself doesn't have any waterness to it because everything is fluid, everything is changing, nothing is the same. And so the whole quality of essence of something means some sort of permanence of something. And the teaching of the Buddha is that everything is temporary. Nothing has any substance to it at all. Everything is empty, empty of a self, empty of essence. And when we take it from empty of the self or empty of an essence, that also makes it empty of meaning, empty of value, empty of importance. All there, all by itself, waiting for a human being to come by and delusional, put importance and value into things. But inherently, Nothing has any importance, nothing has any value until a human being attaches to it. I don't hear dogs talking about value, but they no. do seem to value food, it appears. <laughs> uh, they do, exactly. 
Uh, but that's instinctual. Mm-hmm. That a lot of the things that we value also is instinctual, but is actually valueless. An example of that is each one of us has the instinct of self-preservation, and we all want to live and nobody wants to die, right? That doesn't stop death, not by a long shot. So we value precious life, but look how many lives have gone that somebody thought was precious, and then people have been dead for centuries. Where is the value now in Socrates? What the value of Socrates is, is the memory of what he said. But Socrates himself is long gone. And so how we even value the Buddha is by what's left of the teachings of the Buddha, but the Buddha himself is gone, long gone. And so we begin to understand everything is temporary, and when we see everything is temporary, things begin to lose their value, so that things are no longer important, things are no longer heavy, and we begin to lighten up. That's what's called enlightenment is when we lighten up <laughs> because things are not nearly as important as we thought that they were, that things are actually empty of that importance. What a profound teaching that is, that nothing really is important in and of itself, that importance is something that is added. by the ignorant mind. The wise mind decides or carefully decides whether to add value to something or not. Because ultimately things are empty of any value. So how could we take that as an object of meditation? How could we take emptiness or the fact that nothing has any value is because we can take one object of meditation at a time and recognize that yet too has no inherent intrinsic value. So you can go around looking for value, making sure that you're looking carefully enough to find out that whatever it is that we're inspecting has actually no inherent value. The value that it has is because of the value that I want it to have, rather than the value it actually has. That in fact, that's the whole quality of re, uh, relinquishment or letting go, which was step to 16 of Anapanasati, is to recognize that once it's gone, the, the reality of it is empty now. Why should we pine for something that we used to have and we don't have anymore? It's gone. It's not there. And it doesn't matter how bad we hurt when it's gone. My mommy died or my laptop died or my relationship died or whatever it is that dead is dead. And no amount of pining is going to bring it back just because I want it. So its reality does not depend upon my desire. 
And yet our whole culture tries to teach us otherwise. <laughs> I like the phrase mind over matter. If you don't mind, it don't matter. Yep. That's the phrase of emptiness right there. It's, the thing itself is emptiness of being a matter. The only thing that matters is, is that we think that it matters. So when we think of it in that regard, we can say that all because we see value in something, we haven't seen emptiness yet. And so sometimes students will come and say, oh, I've seen this and I've seen that. And I say, yeah, but you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> you ain't seen oh, nothing God. yet. <laughs> and so when we say we haven't seen nothing yet, how can we see nothing? But we can see that there is nothing to it. That it has no real inherent meaning in and of itself. Other than the, the, uh, the added weight that we add to things, we make things heavy. And the way that we make things heavy is by repeating them over and over again. They talk about it in the sense of chronic ailments or chronic disease. What that means is we do it over and over and over again. That's what makes it chronic. And that's where um, value comes, is when we chronically put value on it over and over again until it gets heavier and heavier and heavier. It's more important and more important and more important. And that can happen with anything. It can happen with a job. It can happen with a relationship. It can happen with an old wreck we call a car. It can happen in all kinds of ways when we begin to add importance to things when nothing really is really all of that important. A big example in our society is the value of work. The value of a job. Uh, have you ever heard of the word Keynesian, like in Keynesian economics or Keynes, the guy who invented Keynesian economics? I, recently, I, I don't think so. I have recently seen that he uh, estimated way, way back when that uh, by now we should be working only about 15 hours a week. Because that should give us everything that we need. And, and in fact, the, uh, the economists say that we actually reached that place at about 1980. And yet we still have the mentality that you got to work 40 hours a week when in fact, everybody already has way more than we need working 15 hours a week. Yeah, I was having a conversation uh, about this with uh, my friend Dai. Um, he actually was on a Sangha call once, if you remember him. Um, but yeah, I, 
I was going on and on about how um, we really are, you know, as a culture, like, it's kind of like people are so desirous that you can't just stop at having a certain amount of stuff or a certain amount of productivity. There always has to be more. And as far as I know, uh, we work more now than hunter-gatherer tribes did. Oh, way more. 100,000 years ago. <laughs> or 50. We work way more than the French. The French have a 32-hour week. Mm-hmm. But it's like as society... Most people have six weeks. Many, many more companies have about and more and more for people to want and it's like we always have to one-up ourselves mm -hmm. rather than just enjoying what's here and with the the way that like the industrial revolution happened and everything since then we have machines do so much work for us that we produce a lot more with less you know effort but we still find ourselves working more and right. it's way back when there was an issue of scarcity mm -hmm. that when we were hunter gatherers, even though we didn't have to work so much, only one or two hours a day or maybe once a week on a great big hunt, there were times when there were nothing there. There were times yeah. of starvation. There were times when the animals left and we got to go leave, too, and go with them so we can eat. All right. So. In the primitive times, there was scarcity. Since we have learned agriculture, there is generally and often no scarcity. Now, in fact, even though there are pockets of scarcity, humanity throws away more than 50% of all the food that we produce gets thrown out and not eaten. Its original intention was to be eaten, and yet it's not eaten. It's thrown out. That's what our land pools are all about. It's garbage. Why? Because we're overproducing. We produce way too much. We have planned obsolescence. No one today is satisfied with the PCs of 1995. I don't think anybody's got a PC that's actually operating and doing work that was built in 1995. And that was only 25 years ago. Look how many cars are on the road that are 25 years old. How about cell phones? Nobody wants a cell phone that's even 15 years old. It wasn't even called a smartphone back then. Yeah. <laughs> that, they were called Blackberries. <laughs> okay, and nobody can get along with a Blackberry nowadays. Blackberries have actually gone right out of business. So, this whole idea then of planned obsolescence that whatever we've got is not good enough, we need the next model. But are the people who were operating with 1995 laptops, were they sufficiently more uh, morose, more depressed, and more unhappy because the laptops in 1995 were not as good as they are now? No, they were probably smiling and happy because they had the coolest, hottest thing there ever was. And that's how we feel now with our new technology. <laughs> Until <laughs> it they didn't get really old. change anything that we have better stuff or better 
iterations of the same thing mm-hmm. in a relative sense because happiness in a lot of ways is a relative game. Precisely. So people have been then relatively well off all along. And yet our mentality is, is that it's still not good enough. We still want more. We still find value in things where inherently there's no value in those things. The value was all added. So the value of the 1995 laptop was the value that was added by the men and people who were using the laptops in 1995. Now, with that same mentality, they can operate with a 1995 laptop. But nowadays, you have a higher expectation. And so you will be unsatisfied with a 1995 laptop. And with all of the minds of the beholders, we can imagine better possibility or we can attribute more value to a different possibility that we don't have, make mm-hmm. ourselves not happy with what's here now, and then go chase the next thing. Absolutely. And we do that over and over and over again, and we're never quite satisfied with the way things are. But when we recognize it, it doesn't matter what new product I get. It's too going to be empty and then any value that it has will be the value that I choose to add to it. And so we begin to understand we've got choices here. That the choice is not taken away from us because of the actual value inherent value of something because the inherent value doesn't exist. And we have a choice as to whether we're going to put value on something or not. This makes me want to turn to a new leaf or page or whatever. (laughs) So (laughs) there are a lot of people uh, in spiritual circles and uh, even, you know, Buddhist ones or people who call them Buddhist, you know, places where they'll say that we don't even have free will or choice. What well, free will was never an issue within Buddhist circles on both sides of the fence. Whether people are looking at a deep, dark past and a deep, dark future and finding meaning there, or whether people can find only meaning in the reality of this present moment. But on both sides of that Buddhist fence, no one cares about free will. That's definitely a Christian issue designed around whether God is going to take your free will away from you or not. Okay, but a real point of view is, is that if we are operating ignorantly, if we find value in things over and over and over again, then we will continue to find value in things over and over again as if it were our destiny. Examples of that, he, he, who, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Well, how does a swordsman die? Does he die as a swordsman? If he dies as a swordsman, it's probably because he got stuck with a sword. But if he puts down the sword and lives to a ripe old age, then how he dies is probably not going to be by the sword. Right? Mm-hmm. When he becomes empty of a sword, he's not going to die by the sword. But if he picks that sword up and and swings it around, somebody's going to come after him with one. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so whatever we carry as our weapon around, we're going to get attacked by people who have that same weapon and find same the same value in it as, as we find in it. And so we start swinging at each other with whatever we think is important. So someone's going to come kill me with the Dhamma. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't I been doing that for the past hour? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, um, yeah, I guess in the sense that a lot of people talk about it or um, one that makes sense to me about the free will question is when you're viewing things as they're not being, uh, you know, substantiality and some like consistent thing about the self. And essentially, we just have this reality of a bunch of parts, you could say. Those parts all interacting, the more that you consider that all the different parts that were outside of, let's say, the personality structures control whatever that personality structure is, you know, conceived to be. It leads one along a line of thinking that there is less and less true will to change anything. It's sort of this the of everything happening and you're just another like billiard ball bouncing around in this. Ah, but you're getting kind of into the point then in the sense that Free will, then, is the answer the Christians have of why do some people sin and others don't. We have the free will to sin, even though we are supposed to know that we should not sin because that's breaking God's rules or God's laws. That's the kind of the Christian point of view of it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's another way of looking at it in the sense of divine providence, then, or um, uh, destiny, that you are destined to do something, which means that you are following God's plan, according to the Christians. But really, we're not following God's plan. God doesn't make plan. What we're following is the program that we picked up when we were kids. And we're following that program. And when we rebel against it or following along, in either case, we're bound by our own past. So the swordsman who dies by the sword, he lives by the sword because he get in the habit of living by the sword. Mm -hmm. And so we go around uh, habit bound. But. With the teaching of the Buddha, we recognize we've got a choice. We can, in fact, put down our weapons. We can put down our swords. We can put down our bad behavior. We can put down any behavior at all that we find is no longer suitable for this moment. In other words, we begin to wake up and recognize that it's actually easier and better to be friends than it is to be enemies, everybody carrying around a sword. Mm-hmm. That that's actually one of the improvements over the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, everybody carried a knife. We don't carry knives so much anymore. I think in some places like Chicago, everybody carries a gun. But here in Thailand, nobody's got a gun. Not even the police have guns. 
it with a few exceptions, but by and large, the police don't bother to have guns, partly because they've got to buy them for themselves. They're not issued a gun by the government. And that mm-hmm. deters even the police from bothering to carry a gun. So in that regard, we can say that we're actually safer now than we were back in the Dark Ages and Middle Ages because everybody was armed. Now you go around most of the time, you are not armed. What you are armed with is possibly a wristwatch, maybe a wallet with some credit cards and perhaps a cell phone. And we find our safety and security in that. But 500 years ago, our safety was in the dagger that we had up our sleeve. But at the same time, I feel like you could probably do more damage with the items you just listed than a knife back in the Middle Ages. Well, (laughs) the times have changed, but the um, devotion to our past has not. Mm -hmm. Okay, that we we get into the habit of doing things and that becomes our destiny. So when we begin to wake up and see that our destiny is actually painful, that if I keep destined in, in, in my destiny is to drive this car right into the tree, then that's what's going to happen. But I don't have to fulfill my destiny. I can make a change if I can see what's, do, what's really going on. Which means now that we can make a choice once we can see. And when we can see that it's actually quite empty for me to drive this car into the tree, I probably won't do it. But some mm-hmm. kids I know will actually drive their car right into the tree because they think that they're going to get some value out of doing that. Like um, maybe mommy will feel gu- sil- sorry and guilty for me if I wreck her car. All right. So we're looking for meaning in all kinds of things. And when we recognize there's no meaning in anything, we begin to wake up and make changes. These changes then are a kind of an expense. So what I'm getting around to saying that free will is not free, but will does exist when we take the right effort to be willful, other than just following our destiny. Mm -hmm. In that regard, free will is not free, it's expensive, and it costs you right effort. And it costs you right effort every time you take the right effort to change your destiny. And you do have the will to change. That's what we really are looking at about the issue is, is there free will or not? The answer is there is certainly no such thing as a free will because you've got to take the the expense of getting over the destiny that you created for yourself. Your life's plan, or as Eric Byrne would talk about it, one's life script. And we live out our scripts. Unless we wake up to them and recognize, no, I don't have to do it just because I was scripted to do it that way. I like it this way. You've heard the example of from Shakespeare that all the world's a stage and every one of us is a player on that world stage. You've heard that, right? Yeah. Okay, here's another way of adding to that, and that is is that everyone who is standing on that stage is not ad-libbing, they are reading a script. And what script are we reading? We're reading the script 
that we were given as children. And we have been reading from that script ever since. That's the script of our destiny. And when we wake up, we can change that script. And one of the things that we can do is we can throw that script out and not live by a script. We can live by a set of wisdom rather than a set of rules or a script that we've got. Because you're always taking that script and judging yourself. Am I up to standards or am I not? Every girl goes into the kitchen or into the bathroom and looks in the mirror and says, am I fat or not? It keeps going on over and over again. We keep asking ourselves these questions based upon some standards and the standards themselves are meaningless. There's nothing to them. These standards are empty. The rules are empty. And when we recognize that all of these rules are empty, we can start making choices about how we're going to live our lives happily rather than following the script, following the rules, going along to get along, doing what we were told to do. That gives you real freedom. And believe me, society does not like freedom. Free people are impossible to control. They're to be respected, not controlled. So the question for you is, are you going to find meaning in all the stuff that people tell you that there's meaning in and then they can control you or you can recognize that there's nothing to it? There is no meaning in anything other than that which I choose to add. And that's your choice. And that's what uh, free will is, but it's not free. It's expensive. It goes against the tide. It goes against the way you were taught. It takes some effort to practice will to actually have the will to make the choice to make your own life what you want it to be instead of what you were told that it should be. That's the value of emptiness. It sets you free because everything actually ultimately is empty. And you were told to pack a lies. You were told how important all that stuff was by people who thought it was true, that it was really important, when in fact there's nothing to it. <laughs> well, Rob, what, what are you thinking of all this? Well, he looks pretty empty right now. <laughs> yeah, he's been looking at it. <laughs> yeah. No thoughts had empty. Um, I'm not quite sure what to make of it. Um, I think emptiness is a really cool topic, uh, but yeah, I don't really know what to make of it. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't come up with an opinion. About there one. really is nothing much to it. Well, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's the whole point. Is there's nothing much to it. Once we see that, we can see that in fact it's kind of a cosmic joke. Because our whole society, our whole crap of religions, our whole everything, all the teachers and preachers and uh, lieutenants and colonels and and all the whole society has been teaching themselves and each other and us too how important things are. How important religion is, how important God is, how important the uh, um, the democracy is how important um, transportation is, how important money is, how important this, that, and the other thing is. But the reality is, is that nothing's got any importance at all. 
inherently. That the only reason anything has any value is because people want it. Think about it like this. What happens when a currency gets to a certain state that no one in that country wants that currency anymore? They want some other currency instead. An example of that would be in Cambodia for a while. Nobody wanted any Cambodian money. They only wanted American dollars. But I've had beggars chase me down the street for a $1 bill. And I could hand them a whole stack of currency of their own that's worth far more than that dollar. They don't want it. Okay, so that's an example that currencies have value only when people want them. And so everybody wants dollars, and so dollars are valuable. At one time, everybody wanted gold. Now that we're off the gold standard, well, some people still want gold. And that's why it's got value. It's because people want it, they'll buy it, they'll sell it, things like this. So it's us, it's us humans that add value to everything. And when you recognize that, you begin to have a choice over what value you're going to put on stuff. That's liberating. It's when you could choose to put the value on. So some things that used to be very important to you, they're not important anymore. There's nothing to it. Like winning an argument. <laughs> we used to really value that. Expressive arguments with girlfriends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you recognize that there's actually more value in not arguing, then we will stop arguing. We'll stop seeing the value in the arguments. Ah, so now that means that we can begin to see emptiness. That's how we see emptiness is because we can see that things are empty of meaning, empty of value, empty of the things that we wanted out of them. The things that we want that we don't have, we think they've got value because I'll feel better if I get what I want. But the fact is, is that when I wanted it, I was in, in deprivation. When I got it, I felt good for a short time, and then I started thinking about how valuable it is and how we've got to keep it, and so I consider it precious, and so now I've got to keep it. But no matter how much I work on trying to keep it, I'll probably lose it anyway. We lose everything anyway. And so when I wanted it and didn't have it, I suffered because I wanted it. When I had it, I suffered because I wanted to keep it. And then when I lost it, I really suffered because it had value. If things have got no value, then easy come, easy go. Right, yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So in a sense, we shouldn't uh, procrastinate becoming a loser. <laughs> Lose everything already <laughs> at the beginning. <laughs> well, we, we give up the sense of loss. Yeah. And therefore, you're not lose even the loss. winner because now you don't have to put up with that thing anymore. It's gone. <laughs> uh, you're above it all. Yeah. So this is a kind of way of looking at emptiness. It has some real value to us. Rather than trying to find emptiness someplace sometime and then making that important. <laughs> so for some people, actually emptiness becomes important. 
but that's delusional because emptiness couldn't possibly be important. Robert, you, I see your hand pop up. Yeah. So what's the technique here? Do we yeah. just like, do we just like look at this cup and then we like mentally like suck in all the meaning and value and importance of the cup and like all our desire for it. And we just like suck that inwardsly and like just take it all out of the cup. And now it's just like an empty cup. Like what's what, <laughs> how do we, how do we make this into like something we can do with our minds? Okay. Is the cup itself valuable? in and of itself, or is your being able to drink out of it what is valuable? Yeah, yeah. Being able okay, to so the beauty of the cup itself is irrelevant, right? Which means that yeah. the cup would probably just as be as, just as good a cup if it had a big crack in it or a big chip on it. Um, if it held water and that was yeah. what you valued about it. Yeah, uh -huh. being okay. but some people have coffee mugs that are decorative. And yeah, I, I probably would not really about that. holding water. It's does it look nice yeah. or does it have it, a it nice like joke a, on it? Like <laughs> a big crack down there. I'd be worried that it would break more easily. Like I might put it down one day and it would just break, you know, like. Well, it, it's going stuff. to anyway, whether you worry about it or not. It's going to break. Then, in fact, what I'm leading up to is what we would call then uh, uh, what they do in the Zendo when they have new um, plates or dishes come in. Generally, the abbot will call to have a little ceremony where every plate and every new cup is chipped intentionally. That's interesting. Why would they do that? The answer to that is now that it's chipped, it's not as important as it was when it was brand new and we had to keep it chipped free. Now it's not nearly as important as it used to be. It's got a chip in it. It's an old cup. Therefore, we could use the cup for what it's intended to be, which is something to drink out of rather than the cup itself having meaning. So that's a way of then seeing um, the cup is, is that it's actually just a utensil and it has a utilitarian purpose. But the cup itself, other than the utilitarian purpose, has no meaning at all. Error how ornate. Now, and you probably heard of Stein. I think that the Stein is probably the most elaborate uh, cup in the world. The, the beer Stein of uh, Bavaria. Big yes. dude with a great big toppy lid and, and all kinds of decorations and ceramics and all that kind of stuff. I've seen those kind of cups go for hundreds and hundreds of dollars. And some of them are quite antique and old. But I can drink out of a 50 cent cup. I don't need a stein. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Pra practically speaking, we're sort of we're not really being fair in our and how we value cups. Like if I had a stein and like a cheap plastic cup that costs 50 cents, I would value the stein a lot more if I'm honest, even though it's probably like heavier and more. Well, I, I was thinking about cups. this. It was you just took a, a bottle of water, it looked like, 
and poured it into a glass of water. <laughs> and typically people would sell that glass for a lot more than the bottle that even had water in it. <laughs> and you can see like the, the, um, the bottle, which is really, it's uh, a, a jar of plastic sauce that's been cleaned up, but the bottle is a lot bigger. It can fit quite a bit more water in it. But you poured it in the glass because you were told to when you were a kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so now we can we can look at that and says, what's the value of pouring the water into the glass and then drinking it out of the glass? Because that's what we were told to do. You're not supposed to drink out of any bottle that's in the refrigerator. You've got to take it at that bottle and put it into a glass, and then you can drink it and put the bottle back in the refrigerator and keep your dirty lips off of our clean bottles. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'm very familiar with that. And here you are with the only one with that bottle, so why don't you make your own mind about whether that your dirty lips are dirty enough to use on the bottle or not? That's being in the here now. But we're but uh, so there there's a clear example then of following the rules without paying any attention to the rules. If you make it a value, it's important or it's value or it's got meaning to put the water in the glass. Where in fact that's empty. There is no value, there is no meaning and put it into a glass. It's just an activity or a behavior. And when we recognize that almost all of human behavior is done that way. And the more we do and the more we recognize that we're doing it because of meaning and that there really is no meaning there, that's when we begin to take the action that leads to the end of action. We begin to see that those actions were meaningless, has no value to it. And so this is the investigation. The investigation is to recognize that a lot of the stuff that we're doing, we did because we were told that it had value or meaning, and it doesn't have any value. It's got no meaning. And we do it anyway. Work nine to five. What's the value in that? Well, you were told to do it. Rob's looking full now. <laughs> I know. It's all on the ceiling there. I can see it's written up there. It's got real meanings up there someplace. <laughs> yeah, just, just sort of dwelling over these ideas a bit. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure what to say. I mean. Well, a lot of us get wrapped up in what's the meaning of life. As if it's got some meaning. Well, Guess yeah, what? Yeah. Life has no meaning other than the fact that we enjoy being alive. That's the only thing that it could possibly have is I like it. I would rather be alive than be dead. But that's the only meaning it has is I like it. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, <laughs> checks out, checks out to me. 
It's got the Rob Gold stamp of approval <laughs> right there. <laughs> <laughs> and for Rob's sake, we'll hope that that isn't empty <laughs> to too many people. <laughs> Everything is empty. Isn't that a blast? Everything is empty. Nothing matters at all except what we make of it. That's we make up the meaning. And we often do it ignorantly because it follows an old pattern of how we made things important. And when we start to question that, we begin to recognize inherently things don't have a real value on their own. The only real value that anything has is because people put value on it. Gold by and of itself has very little value. I mean, it does have some qualities. One of the qualities is, is that it's very heavy. Another one is, is that it's very shiny. Another one is, is that is it, it is durably shiny. Another exa- uh, point about it is, is that it's easily malleable. You put those things together and you've got gold jewelry. And beyond that, it's got days, no value. It's a great conductor, too. Yeah, okay. For the, for the laptops and phones that we've instilled value into. <laughs> exactly. And so some solders will have a little gold mixed with them to make the conductivity better. Then, in fact, that's the real reason that gold is mined, because there's already enough gold to hoard. And so there's two different industries. There's the gold that we hoard and put in vaults and put into jewelry. And then there's gold that we put into laptops. Because they've got a value to it in the sense of conduction of electricity. But guess what? A lot of stuff conducts electricity quite fine. We do not make our transmission lines out of gold. We just don't do that. We don't even make them out of copper. Transmission lines are made out of aluminum. Because the copper wires would be too heavy to string between those big things, you know, the towers or whatnot. And so our transmission lines are made out of aluminum. So that means that even though the conductivity of gold is there, it does it's got limited value as conductivity. Partly because it's so heavy. You wouldn't want to make transmission lines, never mind whether it's expensive or not. That's just human thinking about it being expensive. But the engineering reason is we don't want to use gold for transmission lines because it's just too heavy. We want something really lightweight. And aluminum seems to fill that purpose better than anything else. We don't do it out of mercury because mercury just melts. <laughs> Even though um, uh, going down that same rat hole, even though lithium is a solid, it still, and does conduct electricity, it still does not have the properties necessary to make it a good transmission line material. It would break under its own weight, even though it's the lightest weight of all. The structural elements of it are such that it doesn't, not only that, but it will mix with anything easily. It'll rot right away into iron, or excuse me, some sort of um, uh, lithium compound, highly volatile. 
So it's because of the properties of something that we will choose for it. But that, but those those properties are only useful in the sense of what meaning that humans are putting into it, like transmission lines versus jewelry. So it's us that we decide which ones are value based upon what we like. But inherently, gold just has the properties of gold, and copper has the properties of copper, and water has the properties of water. But copper is not always copper. Sometimes it's copper oxide. Gold is not always gold. Sometimes it's gold dust floating in the wind and nobody could get any of it. In fact, they say that there's more gold in the ocean than we've ever mined. It's just too much work to take gold out of seawater. Just not enough parts per million to make it viable. So. What's the value of the gold that's in the ocean? Even though most of the world's gold is in the ocean, that doesn't mean anything. It's got no value to it. Because we can't put it to work or put it to use or whatever. So this is what we mean by then the, the quality of emptiness is, is that humans based upon their desire, their greed, their ignorance is where value comes from. Other than that, everything is empty of value because it's inherently empty of anything. Just like a car, is there's no carness in a car, but we could put a lot of gold fixtures in that car and it doesn't make it a better car because it's got gold in it. In fact, it's probably not even going to be as good a car if it's got too much gold in the wrong places. It's too heavy. It'd be too heavy, right? You would not want to have gold wheels. And it'd not be strong enough. Precisely. So there is a value of gold. It depends upon what we're going to put to it and put use and all of that kind of stuff. So this is a more wise way of looking at that. There, yeah, some things have intrinsic or inherent properties, but nothing has inherent value. What are the properties of value? Oh, that's, well, utility, I guess, would be the only one. And we yeah. use it. Yeah. yeah. And if you can't use it, it's got no value. Utility or stupidity. <laughs> Sometimes we can't tell the difference, can we? <laughs> so, I have a question, Damaso. All right. So if um if everything's empty, life is empty, um and it's it's enough. Um you know, that we we found the meaning of life is just um I like it, right, I like this life. Um how then would you deal with the sort of um hopelessness that can come about from that? I feel like it's a bit of a hopeless. I cheer for hopelessness. Yeah. Yeah. Hopelessness is, is really, really great stuff. Because that means that you're not hoping for anything. Well, yeah, you've nothing got, get better, right? You've already got everything that you need, so there's nothing worth hoping for. You see, hope, in fact, 
has some quality to do with emptiness. When we recognize that there's everything is already empty, what then what's to hope for? I think someone said in some quote, it might, I think it goes like this, like hope is a thief of joy or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and it's because you're, you're hoping for something else that you would think is better. And that's subtracting from the potential, you know, satisfaction you could have now. Precisely. The way things are now is good enough. Who could ask for anything more? Who could hope for anything more? So I think part of what your question is really about, Rob, is when someone might call a state or emotion or whatever hopeless, um, it really hinges upon whether or not they're satisfied in the moment. If you're satisfied in the moment, hope doesn't really do anything it it has no value at all <laughs> not even an Let say it value has a... it just has you know if you're enjoying everything now there's nothing to hope for really that you would need outside of this so it's now, really there is a kind yeah. of social convention that we can use like i hope everything is okay i hope that you're well this is how we open our correspondence generally, is with uh, good cheer. But that's not real hope. That's just being polite. Real hope is longing for something. Really wanting it to happen. An example of that is Christians really wanting to happen Armageddon. They really want to bring about the end of the world. They really want rapture. And because of that, they're willing to manipulate the Israelis any way that they can to bring about this God's plan of the rapture. It's very, very characteristic of people wanting to bring about the end of the world simply because right now it's not good enough and they're hoping for something better when Jesus comes, the Armageddon comes, the rapture happens, whatever it is, because now's not good enough. But when we recognize that right now is good enough, there's nothing worth hoping for. Everything is already all right. Who can ask for anything more? And so we give up on hope. We give up on the future and let now be okay because now is empty and the future is going to be empty too whatever we're hoping for that's just destroying the right now <laughs> i like that now is empty and the future is going to be empty too that really uh, that really kills the hope that one good god Yeah, I, I suppose there's sort of a certain piece to um, hopefulness, because oh, sorry, hopelessness, because there's 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 no hope, so there's nothing to do as well. We could probably feels like interpret from that, I guess. But yeah, I'm a big yeah, champion that, on but... hopelessness because hopelessness just points out that there's no meaning to it anyway. Things are completely hopeless. Isn't that marvelous? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not all bad. If I'm hoping for something, that means that whatever I've got now is not good enough. I want it to be better. 
I'm beginning to put some meaning on it. Then the meaning that I put on it is not good enough. So I'm hoping for something that I'm putting meaning on that is good enough that I don't have. Wanting stuff that we don't have, that's hope for you. Wanting stuff yeah. that we don't have. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because in our culture, in Western culture, hopelessness is really thought of as a bad thing. And hope, being hopeful is, is like, um, it's a positive trait. You know, it's something that's, it's really important to to, to be hopeful uh, in order to not be depressed, for example. Because we're also <laughs> so ingrained with everything. I know, and this right is the thing you're talking about. <laughs> I hear you laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it really is. It's like um, it's like it's like everything is so bad now that we need a future to keep going and to to slog through it, and so. Yeah, that makes sense, actually. Instead of just relaxing and enjoying, wow, this is so nice, what we've got right now. We're already in the kingdom of God. We're that's already all we in got. Right? That's, that's all, all we got. God is paradise. We're already <laughs> in paradise. Who could ask for anything more? Everything is already here. This present moment is all you're ever going to get. Your choice about whether it's got meaning or not. Your choice as to whether you're going to enjoy it or hate it. Your choice as to whether you're going to have hope for something better, because right now ain't good enough. And all you're ever going to get is right now. And your choice about whether it's good enough or not. <laughs> oh, that one was like a knife to the heart. All you're ever going to get is right now. I was like, oh, that's actually true. <laughs> But why was it a knife to the heart? Because he wanted something. Because <laughs> I was exactly. that. Because he's not enjoying it right now. You're talking with two of your good friends. You're you got a nice roof over your head. It doesn't. I don't see uh, any signs of freezing temperature or anything on fire. Um. Heck, you even got a nice picture of you I know, know some the greens and the Buddha reds right behind you. Yellows, I know he's got everything he needs, and it's still not good enough. And he's still he's open. even got water. That's like one yeah. of the most basic things you need. And he's yeah. Yeah. he's got so much he hasn't even finished it yet. <laughs> well, Rhonda, my coffee's cold. So you're. Are you hoping cold. for it to be hot, or are you just recognizing that it's cold and that's okay? <laughs> yeah, that's true, man. I fell right into that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, cold, cold's good enough. It's okay. Yeah, cold coffee is okay. Yeah, it's not bad. It's good, yeah. I so well, even, is... even saying something's good enough has a little uh slight undercut to it like there's it's some not, right? like it's not just yeah, good it's it's good enough it's not good, good enough it's, oh my it's god <laughs> that's crazy <laughs> i've been using that one for ages and that was being really wholesome but <laughs> that's a really good point not yeah good well enough, is it a good point. enough point or a good point? <laughs> ah that means that you've got a double standard <laughs> the double standard is good enough 
and then the below that is good enough, and then below there is not good enough. <laughs> and so it's a double standard. Make sure that just the one standard is all we need, and that is that it's good enough. Enough. Polau. And that that's a, a, actually one of the problems with, uh, let us call it the, um, the scholarly meditator who keeps wanting to have more and more and more and more information until he's got all the information he needs to practice correctly. Where in fact, all we need to know is just enough to practice correctly. We don't have to know everything about the teaching of the Buddha, just enough, just a little dabble do you. But there's really nothing much to it. Getting back to Sunyata again, there's really not much there. And all we have to see is just that much when we just recognize that there's just not that much to it. And it's actually easy. That's when our spiritual progress really begins to occur. So long as we're wanting something out of our spiritual progress, it's going to be a slow slog. But when we're completely satisfied with how it is right now, then our spiritual progress becomes easy peasy. Yes, yeah, it's like it's, 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 the spiritual it's, progress is no longer important. <laughs> it's, re it's really counterintuitive like that. I've noticed that as well. And almost everybody approaches spirituality, at least at the beginning, with it having to serve some purpose or utility or get you somewhere or out of this or out of that or <laughs> and and when you're looking at things with utility it's hard to enjoy them because mm -hmm. you're looking at what you've got now is not being good enough <laughs> and so that's that's the change of our attitude or the change of mind that we need to make is to recognizing that these these thoughts of it ain't good enough are actually hindering us from the recognition that things really are good enough. Yeah, yeah. And that like I life. can be good enough with what's good enough and be satisfied. And now my whole life changes because now I'm good enough with what's good enough rather than hoping that things are going to get better because I put assigned value to things. But when I don't assign value to anything, then I don't have to hope for anything. <laughs> oh, somebody else is joining. Hey, David. Hey. Oh, <laughs> David. We, we have been talking about nothing much at all. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> In Buddhist terms, we call it sunyata. There's nothing to it. Mm. Nothing has much of any value other than what we add to it. Even hope. When we hope for something, that means that things right now are not good enough. It's crazy. It's like hope. Hope is like I think like sort of like a unwholesome thought in disguise. Like it's disguising itself as like this positive quality, but underneath it is yeah, it's like more desire, desirousness, and all that. The dukkha that brings. Hmm. 
Yeah, they can be a little without desire. It's like as it's like Brandon, what you were saying with enough. It's kind of like enough is like an unwholesome. Oh wait, no. Well, it depends how you interpret it. But some people use some people use enough as well. It's you know, it's not quite just good. It's good enough. (laughs) Yeah, there are different ways of people using these. Yeah, there's different the passing grade, but it's a C minus. Yeah, that's kind of what a lot of people use good enough as when they say it is it's like, well, we got our D minus and we didn't flunk out. So (laughs) Yeah, there's that there's that subtle implication that it's not as good as it could be. It's only good enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the funny thing with the language too, and talking about how things also are kind of empty within themselves sometimes is that the words like the tone and the inflection and all that can have a different meaning depending on how it's said and the context and all of that as well so you know this is good enough could be yeah this is good enough i can just relax or this is good enough as in you know you're saying it's not really good enough you're just like this is good enough. you know i could throw it out so in that regard so it's interesting yeah right Okay, well, we can actually take value in that, looking at it from that perspective, in the sense that enough is, uh, there's two qualities. One is enough is a lie, saying that it's really not enough, but I will accept it, hoping for enough later. But we can also use it from the position that enough really is enough. It's not everything that this C minus is enough because I passed the grade. Let me be satisfied with what it is rather than going back and complaining to the teacher because the teacher gave me a passing grade. Who could ask for anything more? It's kind of like the difference between um, having a full stomach versus saying, well, this little bite of bread was enough for today because you're starving and you're just accepting it as much as you can you know yeah you mm-hmm. make the best of the situation yeah i often return to this is enough this is complete so in it being like enough right here and now it is also like complete like satisfaction right yeah here i, right I now. like complete complete's like an alpha word like this is complete like that's <laughs> that's just got to kind of like like swagger to it like you're not you're not you're not settling for less with complete it's like yeah well this is perfect like that one it's just like you can't get better than let's let's look at an example and the example that i'm thinking of is the example of a smorgasbord or a buffet to where the price is a fixed price or in other cases it's already free that this is a banquet and you're invited to the banquet or this is a uh, buffet uh, and it doesn't matter the cost. The question is, when you go there to eat, how much is enough? If you pay for every little item, then enough would be a fewer items. But when you're at a smorgasbord and all of that food is there, we generally stuff ourselves right up, right? Mm-hmm. It's not ever enough. I can I have room for one more sandwich. I have room for one more French fry. I have room for one more slab of beef. 
you know, whatever it is. I have now I've got room for ice cream, right? And then we wind up walking away from such a place ill. Mm. Because we've eaten too much and we're uncomfortable. But it was never enough. But if we had had dinner someplace else outside of that buffet setting, we wouldn't have eaten nearly as much and it would have been enough. If we begin to recognize that, that we actually do live all the time in a smorgasbord. Be careful how much you eat. And eat just enough. Because when we eat too much, we wind up making ourselves sick. And it doesn't matter whether it's food or alcohol or tobacco or any other product. But anything can be too much. And we have to find a middle path or a balance for everything. And so this is what we mean by enough is that balance point. It's enough. That it's thrown it from out of kilter into balance. We don't have to keep piling on and piling it on, trying to make it better and better. That balance is enough. That if we keep piling on, it's not going to be balanced anymore. It's going to tilt to the other direction. <laughs> and so that's the way of thinking about enough is when it's balanced, when everything is okay, when we're on the middle path, a little dabble to you, enough is enough. And generally enough is enough is somewhere around one or two percent of the possibility. And hope is that other 98%. But all we really need is just the air we're breathing and the wind and the touch of the cloth and the ability to see and to hear and to touch, to smell. We've got all of our senses and they're functioning. And here we are alive. Isn't that marvelous? Isn't that good enough? Yeah. And it's yeah. completely true. Like what you're saying, like we do really like in a really objective, I think, way, like that is really all we need. We don't really need anything. It's kind mm -hmm. of like Yeah. Who would have thought that we can be more we will we'll be better off with less? Like, right, we would always be better off with, with less. I'm, I mean, imagine the guy who goes to the to the store and he pulls out the first credit card and it's bad. He throws out the second one, it's bad. He throws out the third one, it's bad. And how many credit? And every time he has, uh, offers a new credit card that's, that's turned down, he feels worse and worse and worse and worse. Why couldn't we just handed him the first credit card? And if that's bad, that's enough. But we keep hoping, we keep wanting, we keep struggling, trying to get something. Often this out of reach. And that's hope for us, grasping for things we can't have. And so being satisfied with what we do have, because it's enough. Right now is good enough. <laughs> well, I think I've had enough with all you guys. I think I'm going to go hope. <laughs> Right. Go hope for some sleep. 
<laughs> yes, I've had about as much joy from you guys this hour as I can stand. <laughs> That's about uh, where I'm at. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So, Brandon and Robert and uh, David, we'll see you guys later. This has been a great conversation, though there's really nothing much to it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see you guys later. Um, all right. All right. That was wonderful to see you all. This has been great, guys. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks.